1: This is Abounding Grace, today's message simply entitled, Sons of God Through Faith. Join us, Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, coming up next. Sons and daughters of the Most High, as we have spent time this week in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, we've come to a clear understanding that it is by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And as we get going today, we would remind you that we are in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, with some cross-referencing going on in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 17. Join us there and be encouraged as we understand our life in Christ and a life that's based on faith. Here's Pastor Gary in today's program.
2: I ask you, which one are you? Are you a son or are you a slave? Now, our text even goes farther. Our text tells us that if a person is a slave to sin in bondage to the indictment of the law of God, then he is going to be a slave to other things as well. For instance, look at at verse 3 of Galatians 4. It says... Also, we, while we were children, that is, while we were yet immature or while we were still unbelievers, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now notice down in verse 9 what Paul says about these elemental things. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? So he is saying, those people who are enslaved to sin and in bondage to the indictment of the law of God are also slaves to the weak and frail and worthless and beggarly elemental principles of this world. Well, what's he talking about? Well, I think this. The whole discussion that brought Paul to write the book of Galatians was the requirement of the Judaizers of circumcision as well as the rituals and rites of the Old Testament as being the prerequisite for salvation. I think the point he is making is this. When he talks about elemental things, elemental principles, he's talking about the ceremonial, ritualistic character of all heathen religions and of the degenerate judaizing religion which has perverted the true religion of grace in the old testament to an externalistic legalistic kind of religion when you study the history of pagan religions you find out that they all have their rituals and they all depend on whether you do those rituals as to whether The gods are going to be satisfied with you or not. You have to do the rituals the right way. And when you do the rituals the right way, doing these elemental basic principles that govern all other religions, then that gets you in with their gods. That is, if you merit it by doing the right things and the worship of the God that you may serve. Well, the Old Testament is full of rites and rituals, right? The Old Testament is full of all kinds of ceremonies and and all of these rituals in the Old Testament like circumcision and, and all the ceremonies connected with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament were given by God to Israel as elementary principles of instruction. Another translation of the phrase elementary principles is ABCs, the ABCs of ethics and religion. And God gave these basic ceremonies, all these sacrificial things, such as the symbolism of the high priest, his uniform, and the tabernacle, to the ABCs for Old Testament believers of what the gospel would look like and what it would mean so that when Christ then came, these believers would recognize him. All of these elementary instructions and ethics and religion in these ceremonies and rituals had as its purpose to prepare the people of God for the fulfillment of all these rituals and their perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were never meant to have any significance whatsoever apart from Christ. Circumcision means nothing apart from Christ. The Passover means nothing apart from Christ. All of the ceremonies of the sacrificial system, the high priest, the tabernacle, mean nothing without Christ. And that was the point of all of them. If you separate Christ from these things, then you have an empty, eternalistic religion of forms. If you separate Christ from all of these things, then you become no different than the pagan religions with their externals and their forms and their rituals, hoping that going through the right forms and rituals will, some way or another, get you to God. If you separate all these things from Christ, if you separate all these elementary principles of instructions, these ABCs of ethics and religion from the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a slave. Of the elementary principles of the world and enslaved and that enslaved that enslaves all of the pagans, this drive, this consuming desire to try and make enough points with God to be accepted with him, and the prophets were continually warning the people of the Old Testament that these elementary principles, these ceremonies and rituals. We're never given as a means by which you can merit salvation with God if you perform them correctly. Now I think that is the point that Paul is making. And one of the reasons I believe that is in verse 10. In verse 10, after talking about these worthless and weak and beggarly elemental ABCs of things, it says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's talking about observing a particular calendar. You have all these holy days and all these holy seasons and all of these holy months and all of these jubilee years. And you're hoping that if you structure your life exactly by the jots and tittles of all of these ceremonies in the whole Hebrew calendar, some way or another, that will get you in good with God. But you are a slave to it. And it is the same thing that enslaves all of the other legalistic religions of the pagans. What is Paul saying? He is saying your religion has degenerated into external formalism. It is no longer the free and joyful fellowship of children with their father. It has become the dreary routine of regulations and rituals in an effort to make points with God that actually move you further and further away from God as each moment passes. That is why he calls them weak and beggarly. Now, he's not making fun of or criticizing the rites and rituals, the days, the months, the seasons, the years of the Old Testament as they were originally given in their proper context of faith. He's not saying that, for instance, those of you who keep the Sabbath strictly on Sunday, those of you who keep the Christian Sabbath, that it is just external formalism, that it is weak and beggarly, that the basic concern is simply spiritual things. That's not what he's saying. This former rabbi, this Jewish person, Paul, who constantly says he has no intention to discredit the law of God, but to establish it as the rule of faith. Can you imagine a person such as that ever referring to the fourth commandment to keep the Sabbath holy as beggarly? Such a thought is inconceivable. So he's not saying here that you who set aside a day like the Sunday Sabbath is worthless and beggarly because the main thing is the heart. So he's not trying to draw a wedge between the external and the internal as if the only thing that matters is the internal He's not saying it doesn't matter what you do out here as long as your heart is right. That type of dichotomy is condemned by Paul himself time and again with such things as faith without works is dead. If you profess to be right on the inside and you are not right on the outside, then you really aren't right on the inside. And now the point is he's not saying The external doesn't matter, that only the internal matters. Remember again the context and who he's addressing. You have perverted the truth, he said. You have perverted these formerly legitimate God-given ABCs of ethics and religion. You've turned them into something they were never meant to be. They have no meaning apart from grace and mercy and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you've turned them into something you think has meaning in and of themselves, as if you perform them correctly, that you'll earn salvation. And now stripped from their biblical context, they are beggarly. They are weak. They are useless. And you are enslaved to all of your efforts of trying to make points with God. And instead of bringing you closer to God every day of your life, you move farther away from Him. But then Paul goes on and he says someone who is a slave to sin is not only going to be a slave to these beggarly useless elements of ABCs of ethics and religion when they pervert them and use them as a means to try and get to God apart from faith in Christ. Not only are they enslaved to a frustrated life, but notice in verse 8, however, at that time when you did know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. In that having salvation by works and having an external religion, thinking that if you go through all of the right motions that will impress God to let you in at last, you are not only a slave to sin. You are not only enslaved to a life of frustration because how do you know when you've done enough? But you are enslaved to those entities which by nature are not God's. What entities do you think Paul's talking about? I think he's talking about demons. Demons that are always behind idolatry. These are the demons that if a person is bent on justifying himself, justifying himself is a slave to. Paul brings this up in Ephesians 2. He says that a person who is dead in his trespasses and sins is not only a slave to the sinful lust and impulses of his heart, but he is energized by Satan himself. Now, this is a very practical point, an important point. And I'd like you to listen carefully. In being a slave to false religions and false doctrines that teach you to get to heaven by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, you are enslaved to demons. Though these false teachers had crept into the church of Galatia and misled them, Satan himself had explained and twisted God's law to enslave these congregations. Do you know what a false teacher is called in the book of Second Corinthians? He's called an angel of light. The word angelos, angel, also means messenger that this messenger of light, this false teacher, he looks on the outside as if he were the real article. And yet he is simply the mouthpiece of Satan himself. So when you submit yourself to the preaching and teaching of false teachers, when you submit yourself to any doctrine, any preacher that preaches something less than the gospel listen of sovereign grace, That is found right here in the book of Galatians. Not only does Paul say, let that man who preached false doctrine be condemned. But he says, if you submit yourself to false doctrine, you become slaves to Satan and slaves to demons. God gave his law to drive people to Christ. Satan uses to drive them away from God into despair and unbelief. God meant for the law to be a stepping stone to liberty in Christ. Satan uses it as a a, a cul-de-sac, pinning in and deceiving his dupes into thinking that its condemnation and its demands can be escaped by self-effort. Jesus told the parable of the sower in which the sower went out into a field which represents all kinds of hearts in the congregation. Some of the sower's seeds fell on hard ground that is, sun-dried, beaten-down path that wasn't plowed up. Other seed fell on stony ground, that is, plowed ground, but underneath the shallow soil was a a layer of rock. Other seed fell on thorny ground, that is, where the ground hadn't been adequately plowed, and there were all kinds of weeds and briars. And then some of the seed fell on good ground that was plowed deeply. And that is where the seeds grew. It it didn't grow in any of the other hearts. And remember what it says, when the seed that is the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom was planted on the hard beaten down path, it was too hard. So of course it didn't take root, and the birds of the air came and snatched it up and took it away. And then Jesus goes on to explain that when a heart is hard, not plowed up, not convicted of sin, not beaten, not broken and buried by the law of God, a heart of stone, a heart in the breast of a man or a woman or a young person that is dedicated to self-justification, then no matter how true that gospel is planted in their minds, no matter how many times they come to hear that gospel, the birds of the air, that is Satan himself. Is going to reach down into that person's mind and just remove that seed. What are the practical effects of that? Well, I have seen people on fire for Christ for years. They were like sponges for the Word of God, going to church twice on Sunday, attending every Bible study and prayer meeting, memorizing Scripture, always talking about what they were learning. But then they go off to college or they meet an unbelieving guy or girl and they drift away from the truth. Something I would have never thought of them. Well, what happened to them? Well, there are many basic reasons, but simply put, the birds of the air came and snatched God's word out of their hearts. That is what happens when you put yourself under false preachers or teachers or you let the ideas of the world soak in If you listen to people who teach something less than the doctrine of sovereign grace, you will become a slave to Satan and demons. And Satan will reach down into your mind and pluck out everything you have ever learned so it will never occur to you again. And you will be able and glad to listen to false teachers and you'll love everything they say. Because your mind has been cleared of the gospel of the kingdom by these entities that are no gods at all. Only Christ can set us free from all of these slaveries through the gospel of grace by faith alone. And it is to these elementary, these basic elements of the gospel that Paul turns to in the fourth verse. Let's look at that verse. When the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son. I want us to look at that phrase for just a moment, when the fullness of time came. Now, what is Paul doing here? He has been talking about the possibility of a change in your legal status before God from a slave to a son in full possession of inheritance through faith in Christ. Now, in this verse, Paul is setting forth the historical basis for that change of status. He's setting forth a historical basis for our justification, adoption, and emancipation from slavery through faith in Christ alone. We experience the reality of the gospel in our lives the moment we believe precisely because something actually happened in history 2,000 years ago. And that's what he's getting back to. He is saying in reference to the very first century, there was the fullness of, Now, what is the figure, first of all? The figure in Greek is a pitcher that is being filled with water, and suddenly the brim of that pitcher is reached. The pitcher has been filling with water for a while, and, and then it reaches the brim, and the pitcher is full, and the fullness of time has come. The time is ripe. Now, the point of the figure is that God was preparing human society for a specific moment in history when salvation would come to the human race in the birth and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And here is why you, who are criminals, can be sons. Here is why you can be justified in the court of heaven and have God declare you not guilty and accept you through faith without works without laws of any kind being obeyed on the basis of what Christ has done in our place. Here is why. Because of what Christ has done in our place, that there was a moment in time that God was preparing human society for a very specific moment in history, that salvation would come to the human race in the birth and ministry of Jesus Christ. Here again is why you who are criminals can be sons. Here is why you can be justified in a court of heaven and have God declare you not guilty and accept you through faith without works, without laws of any kind, being obeyed on the basis of what Christ has done in our place. Here is why. Because of what Christ has done in our place. That there is a moment in time When God was preparing the whole world for salvation. And at that moment. At that right time. The water reached the brim of that pitcher. That is the basis of your experience of salvation. Now what made the time right? Why is it that in the first century. Which was a long time ago. And it was pretty primitive right? I mean they didn't have telephones or computers. So what is it? that that was the most important time in the history of the world for the birth of the Messiah? Why is it that that was when the fullness of time came and God prepared the world not to come centuries before, not to come in the 21st century, but to come in the first century for the Savior to be born? In what sense was the time ripe? Well, just think of these things. Have you ever heard of the Pax Romana? That was the Roman peace. Rome had pretty much conquered the world and had set up a great republic and and, and then an empire. A Roman empire that was held together by some of the greatest roads that man had ever produced. You can go to Israel and from there to England and travel constantly on Roman roads. So the whole known world was pretty much unified by the Roman empire. That is, you could travel just about anywhere. You didn't have to have a passport to get from one country to another. You could travel freely anywhere you wanted to go as a Roman citizen. And moreover, the travel for those days was relatively easy because they had a tremendous complex of highways. This was an opportune situation for the gospel to spread throughout the world. Not only that, you had the Greek koinos, which means common. Before the Roman Empire, they they tried to unite things by force. Alexander the Great tried to conquer the world, and he tried to unite the empire by having everyone speak Greek, whether you lived in Israel or you lived in Afghanistan or wherever you might have lived. If you could get everyone to speak Greek, then there would be some semblance of unity to his empire. So everyone spoke Greek. The people in the area Jesus preached spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, but they also spoke Greek. So you could travel anywhere in the world, and everyone spoke the same language. You had the language you spoke at home, but Greek was the prevalent language of the day. And then you had the bankruptcy of religion. People were throwing in the towel with the Greek and the Roman myths. People had given up on the gods of Olympus. They had given up on Zeus. They were tired of the religions of the day. They no longer were satisfied intellectually or spiritually. There was a tremendous bankruptcy of religion. People kept, quit looking to the common religions of the day. They wanted something more. Then, of course, there was the Jewish diaspora. The the Jews had spread all over the world, largely because of the Assyrian depopulations of the northern kingdom in 721 and the assimilation of the ten tribes all over the known world. There were synagogues everywhere, all over the world. And everywhere there was a synagogue, there was a Bible. There was an Old Testament. So that the word of God was an easy access, relatively speaking, all over the world. What does all this mean? God was getting the world ratty. He was filling the pitcher to the brim. God had Alexander the Great conquer the world so that everyone would speak Greek. So they could hear the gospel in the same language. God caused the Roman Empire to be established and overturn the Greek Empire. So it would be united by common boundaries and common roads. God caused the people to begin to see the bankruptcy of all the religions that had been so popular for centuries. God spread the Jewish people all over the world where they built synagogues and taught the law of God that contained the truth of the Messiah. God got the world ready for the coming of Christ.